This is Outspoken, the podcast of the Lawrence DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History at California State University, Fullerton. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra. Here at Outspoken, we discuss projects from students, faculty, and the local community that incorporate public history. And because we believe there's no substitute for people telling their stories, Natalie Garcia, the center's archivist, will play some interview clips later on in the episode in our Out of the Archives segment. There was a time when historical research meant archives, not dusty ones, that only works on TV, but carefully organized collections of paper stored in climate-controlled repositories. Doing history meant traveling to and using these primary sources to build a credible interpretation of the past. Then the internet came along. In no way did it replace traditional archives but it began to not only make older documents available through digital scanning, but to begin a quiet revolution in what could constitute historical research. What new questions might be asked? How might raw research materials inform data sets? And how might these be plotted as in a map to tell an unfamiliar story or to retell an old one from a new point of view? How could digital historical research uncover lost landscapes, neighborhoods, communities? How could it help us imagine the past and its persistence more fully? A few years back, Cal State Fullerton committed to public-facing scholarship. It had a long tradition in the field of oral history and was on its way to developing its public history offerings. But the new commitment to digital history, a scholarship that would be developed and disseminated in the digital realm, meant new faculty and new classes. Jamila Moore-Pugh came to the history department after completing her PhD at UC Davis, and she immediately began teaching classes rooted in 21st century digital history concepts, mentoring students in the field, and developing her own trailblazing projects, unlike any the department or the DeGroff Center had seen before. For this Outspoken podcast, I sat down with Jamila and with CSU history graduate Shirley Virgil, who is assisting Morpew in a major new grant-funded digital initiative. Jamila Morpew and Shirley Virgil, welcome to Outspoken. Thank you Thank for you. having us. Thank you for having us. It's good to have you. Um, I wanted to talk about this major project you've got going on, or we could talk about multiple projects you're doing. But before we do that, I thought it would be helpful to listeners to just talk about the field of digital history. What is it? How is it different from what we think of as regular old history? <laughs> and, and what sorts of things are we talking about? Okay, so that's a big loaded question. I know. I did it first <laughs> so you could take up the whole period talking about it. Yes. So, okay, so I'm going to try and make it as succinct and user-friendly as possible. Um, But I would frame digital history as this field that is under the big umbrella of digital humanities, and digital humanities being this field that's really concerned with using um, digital tools, technologies, new media um, to uh, reframe methodological approaches to um, humanities research questions, problem spaces. Um, So it could encompass a variety of different 
tools. It could encompass everything from thinking about digital mapping as a way to understand uh, migration and communities in place, but it could also mean digital storytelling and um, the variety of tools that are under that umbrella. Um, it could be used for presentation, which is probably most often how everyday people interact with these fields, whether they know them as digital history or digital humanities, they're kind of interacting with these things that have been produced for the digital environment that you access through the web or through a mobile app. Um, or they could be things that are actually what I call back-facing instead of forward-facing, meaning that they're tools that people are, are developing to really help them understand and analyze data uh, differently and in higher volumes than they have been able to do in the past. And so this would encompass um, fields within um, digital humanities, such as text mining. Um, so that, and distance reading, so that maybe instead of working with 30 different kind of sources, instead you'd be working with uh, 300,000 <laughs> or more to better understand a um, historical question, phenomena, or event. And so that kind of encompasses the, the broad scope. How digital history fits in is that historians really began looking at the using these tools that began to emerge with kind of the, the development of the World Wide Web. Um, in the mid-90s, they started to look and see, oh, people are putting things on the web. They're talking about their interests. They're, you know, putting things out there that um, about historic sites or events or places. And so in some ways, historians saw that as an opportunity to engage with those tools in an experimental fashion to see, oh, what would it mean to kind of build a, a website around this topic? Um, and uh, there were other people who were at the same time using corresponding technologies such as geographic information systems um, to better understand things like the Salem witch trials. Um, how did this play out geographically? Um, and so you always had people kind of looking at new ways to work with historical data. And so the kind of evolution of the web um, over uh, from like the mid-90s through, I would say, you know, the 2000s really kind of birthed both the kind of dual fields of digital humanities, but also digital history more specifically. And digital historians kind of began becoming a thing <laughs> as they started using it for more and more um, purposes of not simply just maybe putting information out to be digested, but really thinking about how can I use these tools to actually analyze data? Um, how can I use it to maybe build a new historical argument? about something that I'm seeing. And that's really kind of one of the, the key, um, I guess, shifts, if you will, within kind of the, the, the digital history realm, which is seeing it as not just a tool, a digital uh, tools and new media and new technologies, not simply as things that we use to present historical data, but things that we use to actually create new historical arguments. Wow, that was succinct. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, that makes me think, what, what are the kinds of um, 
I mean, historians ask questions, right? Yeah. They always start out with research questions. What do we want to know? How can we know it? How can we get to the place where we know it? What kinds of new types of questions do you think these new methods open up for us that maybe before we couldn't even have conceived of? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm going to draw on things that I've seen. <laughs> great. I was going to say, if you have a specific example, that's great. Yes. So uh, so one of the things, and this is probably one that I use a lot to help kind of make this, like tie, anchor this, uh, this field um, down for students, which is um, measuring the volume and impact of transatlantic slavery. Right. That was a big kind of topic within the discipline for many years. And um, you had people writing on, you know, the impact was um, the impact from different continental perspectives. What was the impact on the African continent? What was the impact on the Americas? Um, from the African continent, there was this, uh, you know, this debate going on about, you know, really what impact did it have? And, and was it significant enough to shape how we see modern um, Africa today? And so these were kind of hotly debated within historical journals and publications. Um, and then people began to quantify the data. They began to look at the actual ship manifest and create these spreadsheets. And then these spreadsheets evolved into uh, thinking about, well, I'm looking at this data from this particular um, port, maybe. And um, what happens if I was to pull this data with looking at someone else's data from another port? And, and so then you started to kind of get these geographic perspectives on what this volume and impact may have been. Um, and eventually, you still had these debates going on, um, you know, which most students who do African history will have had to read all of them <laughs> probably in like the same week and weigh in on, which is, you know, was it this was it this many or that many or, you know, how many people were actually, you know, moved from the continent and and all of these things that we suddenly kind of had the, you know, quantitative data to discuss. Um, but that project didn't stay there. It shifted and then evolved into then the CD-ROM, which became the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database. And then you had people developing all these other kind of scholarly arguments out of it and moving from a discussion of looking at maybe volume and impact to environmental um, impacts to looking at how did the slave trade, um, transatlantic slave trade differ um, on the West, when people were deported from the West Coast to, you know, the Eastern um, part of the continent. And so now in the, you know, the 21st century, that argument has largely been kind of encompassed in what has become more than just a data set of different historians pulling their quantitative data together, more than just a CD-ROM of, you know, uh, primary sources and figures, but it's become this dynamic kind of um, hugely um, informative project called the uh, Slave Voyages Project. And people can access it online, and regardless of their expertise, they can kind of understand, um, they could look at it from the standpoint of, you know, even understanding the slave ship as a vehicle of transportation and, and as a tool within uh, transatlantic slavery to understanding. Um, they even have a simulation now that simulates the, my, the, the voyages. And, and, and if you click on any of those little dots, then you get more information about that ship 
um, you know, where it came from, who was on board and all of those things. And so that's kind of like one example of really how uh, leaning into digital history has kind of changed um, the way that we understand that one topic of transatlantic slavery. Um, there are other great projects um, that kind of also use, um, uh, you know, looking at kind of high or what we call supercomputing or big data to understand um, historical phenomena. So one of them, we had a speaker, Nicole Brown from St. Mary's College, come and speak a, a couple semesters ago, and she had worked on a project that um, took the Hadith Trust uh, database and looked at it over did um, looked at it over a period of I think a hundred years um, to really just parse out what things were in there about Black women to get a sense of what how Black women impacted um, the spaces that they were in over a hundred year period. That's something that we could not have done. Um, with just kind of our traditional kind of methods, because it would have taken us a lot of time. And a lot <laughs> and of different archives. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So those are kind of examples of how we were able to mobilize um, technology to kind of further uh, historical projects and arguments. I love the, straight, the slave trade example that you give because it has relatively deep roots yeah. back into the 90s and, and the, the advent of the Internet but then we go to CD-ROM. We remember CD. I remember. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember CD-ROM. Yes. Web 2.0 then opened up all kinds of new things, right? In the early right. 21st century, new possibilities. Yes, new possibilities and ways that I think what you know we often imagine um, the technologies that we use daily. So maybe we use um, a smartphone, um, and so there are people now trying to figure out how to do community mapping. Um, using mobile apps. Um, there are, you know, walking tours of um, historic places and, um, and sites, and those are all within the same realm. Um, but we also could use uh, things like sound, audio studies. It has really progressed in the last, I would say, decade, and there's a lot of tools that are kind of out there. I remember one was like this Roaring Twenties project, and I'm forgetting the... Um, the scholar's name at this point who who created it, but it was this kind of moment in which they were really taking, um, you know, seriously what, like, how do we experience urbanism through the sounds that we hear and experience on a daily basis? And um, and I thought that project was incredible. <laughs> um, and And so there's, so we can think of it as more than just, you know, history on the internet, but really history merging with new technologies. And so we kind of see some of the earlier projects being very much, you know, web-based, but then we also see some of the newer projects being very much kind of mobile-based and oriented into, you know, what, what's, what are we, what new technologies are people engaging with? Then how can we fold the discipline into those? Yeah, that's great. Um, that rem that make takes me to the next thing that I thought we could talk about for a bit, which is to what extent do you think digital history is public history, that is public-facing history? We're at the DeGroff Center recording this, and we consider you a public historian, yeah. um, adding that hat to all the other ones that you wear. <laughs> <laughs> um, but w to what extent is this sort of public-facing history, and, and what is the difference to you 
what difference does that make to you in the types of research that, that, that you're interested in? Oh, that's a good question. I'm like looking over at Shirley. <laughs> like, we could talk about that for a long time, right? <laughs> um, I think, I think, I think for me, digital history is part of the same kind of knapsack that public history is in. Um, so I see it as it's 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 history in motion. It's applied. It's and a lot of times it's 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 kind of impact lives off the page. So we know that in a lot of kind of um, traditional historical scholarship, it exists within the manuscript um, or the journal article. And for me, a lot of my scholarship exists within kind of the applied spaces that I work in. So some of it may be on the web, some of it may be in a, you know, a digital, like a zine or a publication that we produce. Um, others may live in um, a mobile app. And so I see it as kind of this immer this kind of merger of, for me, um, the digital history that I do is public facing. And so for me, it's kind of like this, um, it's this happy little little community in which I consider myself a digital and public historian. Um, and that is different because not every digital historian does public facing work. Um, but I think that if you want to, the opportunities exist. And so we do find, like I find a lot of the students that I end up working with, they actually start off in public history courses here. And then they kind of add this digital component, but it's a really cohesive and smooth transition. Well, that brings me to Shirley. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Shirley, you're so a graduate of our program, and we, we've known you for a while, but how did you get interested in this field? Well, um, I like the question because I like to play with the answer. And I just don't know if, you know, digital history found me or I found digital history you know, and, or we found each other. <laughs> um, and that's because, um, and uh, I was doing my, my, my thesis work, and it was this work around the oral histories of uh, the Garifuna community in Guatemala, trying to um, uh, rescue some of the stories that, of uh, war and um, that impacted this community in the 1960s all the way to the 1980s, right? And 19, 1990s. And, um, and I knew what I wanted to do. I knew exactly what I wanted to do with these stories. The only thing is that I just, I knew something was missing. I knew I, these stories couldn't, couldn't just stay in print. And, uh, and I think I, I promised this community that I was, going to uh, come back with with their stories and uh, that I would amplify their stories in some way, some some way, in some form. Uh, and I just didn't know what, what it was. I just didn't know anything about digital history. I have no idea of any technology that would, would take me to that step. And so that's when I say, I don't know if I found digital history because um, um, I, I knew there were courses on campus uh, in the digital um, in in history uh, around digital uh, doing digital history. I just didn't know how to apply it to my project, 
And um, I don't know if you know that, but I survey a few few of your students outside oh, your class. I did not um, know that. Uh, true stories here. <laughs> right. No, because uh, I, I really was intrigued about this. What is digital history? I just didn't know. Um, and I survey maybe two or three students about, you know, their projects. And some of them said, uh, so we're doing digital exhibits. And I'm like, oh, I have stories. I have stories to share. And, uh, and now we're talking about digital exhibits. What is this? And how do I do that? And, um, and that's when I ended up in your class. And um, so I was... Um, I think that my my search, um, my personal search for uh, amplifying these stories turned into a passion that I didn't know uh, CSUF actually offered, right, which got me even more excited about the next step. So I kept asking, you know, what's next? You know, how do I do this? And, and I think uh, Dr. Um, Jamila, here, I mean, she just guided me through that process of fully understanding um, a, what it meant to tell the stories using technology and using media to amplify something that, you know, I just didn't know I could do. That's great. Um, Jamila, though, you had to have an experience like that a while back, right? Yeah, you didn't start out day. as a digital historian. <laughs> no. How did that work and, and how did that lead to, we could talk about several of your projects, but we should talk about the one that, that you've been at the longest probably, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of, I had a moment like that in, um, as a graduate, well, actually I would say it maybe even started before I went to graduate school. I was working at the Museum of African American History in Boston and I was hired to be their development um, associate. So I worked under the Officer of Development. I would process memberships and, you know, helped put together fundraisers and did a lot of tasks that had nothing to do with the actual historical interpretation of the site. <laughs> but I um, really loved my work there. Um, and I started just kind of dropping in on the Director of Education, Lamerche Frazier, who's phenomenal kind of um, you know, artist in her own right, and um, and had these all these creative ways that she was trying to bring the story of that site to life, to the community, and but when I would go outside of work and I would talk to folks who lived in and around Boston, and I'd say they say what do you, what do you do? And I was like, oh, I work at this museum, and it's right in the heart of Beacon Hill, and it has this amazing history of like um, the city's, you know. Um, free black community um, and they would look at me kind of like what <laughs> what are you talking about like I've never heard of that so at that time um, and that was probably the early 2000s the site was much more on the radar of uh, guests who were coming into the city than say the people who lived there um, the majority of people that I would encounter um, would not know that it existed and that's kind of got me started thinking about how do you how do you make uh, vital historical information more accessible how do you bring it out in the way that people will see it feel it almost you know experience it 
even outside of some of these spaces that we work in, like museums and archives and, and, and academic institutions, because what I realized was that the majority of the people who needed to know that that history existed were not visiting the site. Um, and so I wanted to kind of be, a, I wanted to really stretch myself to think about that. And that question has really stayed with me, I think, throughout you know, graduate school and, and, and kind of early career is really thinking about how do you make vital historical information more accessible. And so I use that in my own uh, work as a graduate student and I um, set out to kind of, um, and at that time there was no option to do a digital dissertation. <laughs> so I did a regular dissertation and I did a digital project. And the digital project was really kind of my, my, my way of experimenting again, just like those earlier digital historians, kind of like thinking about experiment, but then really moving just as they did from the exper experimental to really the argumentative and to say, if we really hone in on our methodology, why are we using certain tools over others? Why are certain tools not the best tools to express this historical relationship event or, or, or you know, moment? And if I really hone in on the methodology, then these can not only be things that can become more accessible and publicly available within the digital format, but that they can also carry with them the weight of reframing historical arguments about the topics as well. And so that's kind of where I moved into really um, stretching myself, but I also often say I want to stretch the technology as well. Um, and the technology is always changing, but sometimes those changes actually hinder our ability to incorporate um, them into our scholarship. And uh, so, you know, one, one example is just the cost of engaging this <laughs> field. Sometimes, you know, things start off completely free and open source, and then somebody's like, oh, people are using this, and it becomes like a pay-to-play kind of thing. So it's, and, and, and sometimes, you know, um, projects or platforms, they don't, they lose their support. They lose, you know, the team that's been working on them and they, and they kind of just fade away and then you're left with this half-finished thing. So there's a lot of kind of risks that are involved in the work, but I always want to see how can we stretch the technology to better say, how can it help me, like really um, create a new argument, um, weigh in on this in a critical way. And so that it becomes more kind of technology for the sake of introducing new scholarly engagements as opposed to technology just for the sake of saying, look at this cool thing, mm -hmm. which is really, a, it, it's an act of discipline because there's a lot of cool things out there <laughs> and that you can do, but not all of them actually help you kind of build your your argument or have the intervention. And and so for me, that's really how, how my work evolved. And then really seeing my work as oriented in community-engaged practices helped, I think, to us squarely kind of situate me in a space where I looked at my digital scholarship as also very public scholarship. But let's talk about that actual project because oh, okay. you were able to essentially unearth history, mm -hmm. unearth a physical space via digital methods, right, in, in yes. Connecticut. So yes. tell us about that. Oh, okay. So my, my 
large part of my work has been focused on the um, historic Little Liberia community in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And this was a community that had literally been forgotten over time. It was um, historically, it was a black and Native American community that really came about in the early 1800s, um, even before the city of Bridgeport itself was incorporated. So it has these roots that predate the, the, the roots of the city. And, um, and it was this amazing dynamic site um, in which people owned their own homes. They um, petitioned the state assembly for a school. They had a lending library. They had two churches. They, had the, they even had a hotel. And that is saying a whole lot because today in the city there is no hotel, right? <laughs> and, the, and it's kind of been uh, an issue. Like, but the, this community had a hotel and it was um, a big deal, but then it was all forgotten for a number of years. And it wasn't until the city historian, Charles Brilvich, at the time working in the 90s, um, came across some um, a property and began digging into it and realized that these were the like two very, very, very old, still standing homes from linked to this community. And so my kind of engagement with it was that I was looking at the, re I was looking at the, um, I, I, I call my project like a genealogy of the place named Liberia. So we know that they called their community Little Liberia, but I was looking very broadly at Liberia as this particular site that evoked black freedom throughout the 19th century and even today. The place where uh, free African-Americans uh, colonized, right? Yes, yeah. in, in West Africa. And so I began looking at it um, because I wanted to get a do a spatial history of Liberia, but that spatial history actually led me back to America. And, and that is kind of where I say my work differs from a lot of people in that we focus so much on what Americans brought to West Africa, but not so much what West Africa and that idea of that space and that community actually brought back to America. And so then I began looking to see, are there other little Liberias out there? And where are they? And how can we kind of talk about these? Because the one thing that, you know, we didn't have was we didn't have that one letter from one person who went from the U.S. to Liberia, came back to Bridgeport and said, this was my experience. So now everybody calls it little Liberia, right? That would have been too perfect. <laughs> Neat. Right, right. But what we had was we had something was going on. There was some information that was being transferred across the Atlantic. There was some thoughts or notions of freedom that were circulating. And so I wanted to really actually built my whole project around these very tenuous and untangible things um, that didn't have that, what we call like a smoking gun in the archive. Mm -hmm. um, but using a lot of kind of um, digital research methods and thinking about how can I use um, a digital mapping platform to better see the engagement between these sites um, that, that seems so different um, but they shared a place name was really kind of how my, my work evolved from there. And, um, and so I created what I called the Black Atlantic um, map at the time. And it was really this map that was supposed to, and I say supposed to because it was a prototype. And um, right now the technology is like, seems like so dated, right? But at the time um, we used kind of open layers, um, which is a digital mapping kind of um, 
interface and uh, over a Google map, and we tried to really uh, integrate it with a timeline so that we could see not only what ideas were traveling, like whether it was concepts of freedom or whether it was even um, economic, was it goods, was it people, you know, engaging through commerce, um, but to see what things were transferring between these different sites, and then also to see it uh, across time and space simultaneously. And so it's that relationship of being able to, or wanting to see things represented visually and in my face <laughs> across time and space that really pushed me even deeper into the field of digital history because the tools didn't really quite exist to see those things simultaneously. And I asked a lot of people and I knocked on a lot of doors and people just kept saying, we're not there yet, we're not there yet, the technology's not there yet. And I, and I just kept kind of saying, okay, well, I'm going to keep asking and I'm going to keep <laughs> stretching the map. And so I would say all of my work since then has really been trying to stretch these tools to say how can we represent this in a way that's both legible to me as the scholar who who has spent like 10 plus years working on it, but to the person who's coming, you know, just very new to the subject. Because to me, that's the most important part um, is that I, I want it to not just be something that makes sense to me on the back end as a researcher, but that makes sense to people in the community who are passing by this house and they see this little placard and they say, Liberia. And we actually had that happen. A man walked by and he saw a little banner and it said Liberia. And he just was like, this is, I'm from Liberia. But he was part of this 21st century migration but the ideas of freedom, the concepts of freedom, the reason for people naming and renaming and, and, and reimagining their communities resonated with him even still. And so that's kind of where that work is um, situated, and it kind of informs the work that I do after. Yeah, I mean, you, you uncovered patterns of communication and, and discourse via goods, via uh, words. Um, that there was no other way to really do that, right? No, there wasn't. There was. It was very. And and I also would say um, I spent a lot of time researching in um, in kind of in digi digital archives as well um, because there was so much that at that time was being digitized but wasn't fully complete. And so I was just kind of like I, I was in the office of city zoning looking at their maps which they said will never be digitized. We will never digitize these things. <laughs> so I was taking every little screen, every little like photo I could, but then also going back and looking at, you know, things that were being digitized. So it was like this kind of, um, I call it like this amalgamation of, of really merging all of the resources and methodologies available to me as a historian to really create this project. Let's, change coasts. <laughs> Let's come out to California. Okay. Because you put together a project, and I think you worked on it too, Shirley, right? The Mapping, mapping Arts. The Mapping Arts OC project, yes. right? Orange County. Mm -hmm. What is this project about? I know it's got a web presence. Tell us about this. Yeah. So Mapping Arts OC was, um, it was this moment where we had an opportunity to engage with Laura um, Pardo Kirby, who is a trained artist and anthropologist. 
and she had, as part of her doctoral research, created a platform where she mapped locations of art, artistic spaces in the city of Miami. And I had read about her work and was always really impressed with the platform that she had developed, but also just the concept of seeing our cities in ways that are not available to the naked eye. So being able to imagine or reimagine what this looked like um, to Zora Neale Hurston. What was Hurston's Miami, right? What was, um, or, you know, and in, the, and in our case here, it was really about seeing, okay, how can we use this tool to engage a similar kind of um, historical mapping process? And so I linked up with her and got permission to launch a new instance of the site that was called Mapping Arts OC. And, um, and this one, we really wanted to focus on public art. And while we focused on public art, and it's called Mapping Arts OC, and it's since expanded to include map around all of the county, for that first year in 2018, we focused primarily on the city of Santa Ana. And that was important because in looking at public art, um, I knew from my work in Bridgeport, where I had worked with artists to um, develop art specifically to depict Little Liberia's story, that one, you know, it's great to support local artists. <laughs> Two, public art has a particular space in which it's able to tease out what is happening in the city in ways that, you know, simply um, doing participant observations or walking through like a plaza don't necessarily show you. And so it was that merger of saying, like, how is the public art scene shaping the city that is yet to come? Um, and in particular, in a city like Santa Ana, which was at one time labeled the most rapidly gentrifying city in um, California, as well as a city that largely has been gentrifying through the arts, I felt that this was a really important topic, but it was a, also really, really controversial. <laughs> so when we started trying to build community partnerships to say, hey, we're going to do this project, you know, it was interesting because I got some people who were really, really excited, and then some people who were like, this is going to be a hot mess. <laughs> like, don't touch it. Too controversial. Too controversial, right. And Cal State Fullerton, to full disclosure, we have the Grand, Grand Art, Central Arts District there. We've been part of the gentrification, right? Right, yes. So it also was, like, too controversial, close to home in terms of being connected to the university and... Um, and, and, you know, and also I think it was, um, it was something that we, we didn't have a presence. And, I mean, we had a few um, scholars who actually were from, a few professors from CSUF who are from Santa Ana and who had connections. But as, in terms of, like, aside from this thing that was seen as a gentrifier, the Grand Central Arts at the time, you know, that was our presence in the community. And so it was kind of, it was walking into um, a hot mess in a <laughs> sense. But what, but I had been in Bridgeport and, 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 and working, you know, with the city there to, to reimagine this historic site. And so I was used to a hot mess in a mm -hmm. sense because, you know, I was used to like the, the, the kind of the different tug of wars and pushes and pulls from different stakeholders. Um, and I thought this would still be great because the other thing that we had was we had a lot of students who were from 
Santa Ana mm -hmm. and had never seen their city, their history represented in the classroom in this kind of light. And so I really saw it as an imperative that, you know, we need to, we need, like I needed to do this because they need to see that they are part of a larger kind of network of ideas and experiences and that their city is also important. Um, and, and so to me, that was kind of the push to, to kind of go into this. But that project we documented, um, we built some community partnerships um, with different folks in the city who had been invested in understanding this, the city's history and um, arts culture. Our base map that we started with for Mapping Arts OC largely grew out of a spreadsheet that local um, artists and historians had been just compiling and that they actually gave to us and said, you know, here's a starting place. We, we, we haven't done much more than just put this on a spreadsheet. And again, always wanting to move beyond a spreadsheet, um, I said, okay, let's, let's start to document these. And, and really what that gave us was through our platform, um, it really is a, it's a digital map, but it's really a digital storytelling platform. Um, in that uh, we went out and um, we had these discussions in class before we actually went out to the sites in which we talked about finding the story within the story. Um, and that was a big thing because I didn't want us to just plot things on a map. Um, it was really important that we brought something new to the table. Um, and that was really saying, what is the story behind these pieces? And seeing part of that story is taking shape in that what we were documenting were sites on a map, so street names, street addresses, and we were documenting artists. The story for that project was really the public works, the artworks themselves. What happened when this artist came into this community and created this thing? And that became the first story. And then once we understood that, then the students were tasked with doing more research, even kind of just spending time in those spaces, talking to people, asking questions, observing. And that became the search for the story within the story. Shirley, what was that experience like? What sorts of things did you do? Um, well, we had to walk the streets of Santa Ana. <laughs> um, and uh, in, it was... a. Uh, for me, was pretty much my, my first experience to walk around um, just the streets, the alleys, and uh, what you notice is that the the community has a relationship with these murals as well, right? When they walk by, uh, whether they go to to the schools, to their churches, or just you know doing their daily routines, right? There's a story there. There's a connection with these murals, good or bad. You know, not every uh, mural actually spoke or every uh, art spoke to to the communities, right? Uh, some of them, there was some, some, even some tension between, you know, the messages that a lot of these, you know, public art was conveying to the community. And... Um, so it was a very unique experience to walk the streets, look at these murals, 
and trying to connect a with the artist trying to understand what the artist was trying to you know say through their piece and second uh, how is a community uh, in, in, in that relationship right well how how are they building this relationship I, f- I felt that it was um, it also was very also very interesting to see how um, the process of creating these these murals right it was not just this one artist you know working alone so we I, I, I learned that there was a, a community behind it you know it's, it was a process of creating uh, these public uh, uh, displays of art and uh, students were involved uh, families were involved and uh, so to me I'm not an artist you know and, and so learning that process was you know was so informing to my work and uh, and and we had a good group of students also learning that you know that there was something there that we, you know is not often uh, told just by looking at a by just by looking at a mural so I think that that helped uh, our work especially when we worked with the the activity book that we that we were able to you know um, put together you know for the for the younger uh, groups for schools it was a k through k through five yeah so yeah so this project um you know it started off with this desire to use you know to expand on um this platform and to create a, a space to do some Uh, digital storytelling around public artwork and to really use that as a way to understand um, this one question that and I kind of try and anchor all of my um, digital um, projects within a key question and for this project the question was who belongs in a city and that was taken from um, uh, oh my goodness I'm, I'm gonna butcher the last name but um, a Nigerian author's TED Talk, very famous. Everybody <laughs> Google it and know um, her. Shinamanda. Yes. Go see Adichie. Yes, yeah. Adichie's TED Talk. And she and I thought it was so, it just resonated with this work. Um, and we actually watched the TED Talk in class and we talked about it. But it was really this question that I also saw that, you know, people were asking um, who belongs in this city amidst all of the rapid gentrification and displacement um, that it was bringing? And also the way in which kind of the arts community was being kind of caught in this whirlwind um, where they were getting commissioned by the city to produce work, but then also the communities that they had, you know, grown up in or that they had. Um, interacted with were getting displaced by these same initiatives. And so um, and so I thought that question really guided us. And so we started off definitely with the digital map, but then we also got a California Humanities quick grant to support this work. And, you know, there they they wanted to see what is the public impact. Um, and, and so for there, we stretched the project to include other products that we developed from the same data set um, for the public. And so that included the K-5 illustrative history book that Shirley mentioned and that she was a huge part in bringing together um, and, and just laying out and seeing, okay, we can, we, we still, we love the digital, but we understand that people still work <laughs> 
in the analog environment, right? Mm-hmm. And so how can we reach a different audience through that? And so that was really geared towards K-5. Every time we share it, though, adults want it. They mm-hmm. like they want to color. It's therapeutic. It's interesting. So it also speaks to the absence of that kind of resource, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we did that, and then the final product we did for that was a mobile walking tour that was really situated on murals in the downtown core at the time, um, only because we realized right away that we were going to have people walking for miles, and so <laughs> it was like an edited choice. Yes. Now, people can access the site, right? Mapping Arts OC? Yes, they can online. access that online. And if they go to Pocket Sites, um, which is a third-party site where we built and housed the mobile walking tour, they can access that there. Great, great. Um, let's talk about this big new grant that you got okay. and what, what you're doing with it. Yes. And what Shirley's doing with it. <laughs> what Shirley's doing. So... Throughout all of these projects and all of this time, there's been this need to really, I think for me, to create resources so that I can better equip um, students that I'm working with to go out and to be successful in this field um, of you know, digital, digital history. It, there's a moment in which you teach the class and then afterwards a student like Shirley will come up and say, so now what? Like, I want to make this my everyday. What well, do I do? One of those students. <laughs> one of those. One of those. Right? One of the, <laughs> the questions without answers, right? Yes. And so I had started kind of just building little things here and there, um, a professional development series for master students to try and say, okay, how can you kind of mobilize what you've taken from these experiences into the next realm? Um, and applying for different grants through the NEH um, uh, and other entities to try and see how can we get more resources to kind of to build more sustainable um, opportunities for folks to continue this work here at Cal State Fullerton. And all of those kind of led me to be in this position where um, some of my my research that I worked on um, for my initial project on Bridgeport's Little Liberia made its way into a publication called The Digital Black Atlantic. And as we were having that book launch, um, I was asked to present one of my, you know, from my chapter on that. And it just so happened that my co-presenters ended up for that book launch became my co-PIs on this um, Digital Ethnic Futures Mellon Grant. PI meaning? Primary investigator. That's that's our our academic speak. (laughs) Yes, I'm sorry. (laughs) So they became my um, my 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 (laughs) co-pals. That's another way we are pals, right? Yeah. Um, In kind of imagining um, this digital ethnic futures consortium, which was led by Rupika Rissam, who's at um, Dartmouth, and um, her work. She was also editor of the digital back. One of the editors with. Um, Kelly Baker Josephs of the Digital Black Atlantic, but she reached out and said, you know, I think we have something here. We're all at um, regional public universities where we have limited resources to do the work that we're doing, but there's a need, and we all know that. Um, so let's get together and let's kind of 
imagine what this could look like on a bigger scale. And so we spent the summer of 21 writing, revising, and writing again. And eventually we got this grant, which was from the Andrew Mellon Foundation. And it was a $3 million um, grant to build the Digital Ethnic Futures Consortium over three years. And the consortium works as a hub and spoke model. So whereas Salem State University um, is the hub and they're kind of the administrative hub, then CSUF along with Texas Southern and New Jersey City University are the spokes. And we're kind of out there advancing the work in our regions and at our institutions. And really it's concerned with how can we build um, the capacity for uh, students, staff, library staff, um, faculty at regional public universities, minority serving institutions, and even community colleges to really engage um, projects and curriculum at the intersections of uh, what we call digital ethnic studies and digital humanities. Um, so that comes with a lot of things that we're doing at the national level in terms of granting fellowships. But in particular, I got to write my dream budget for Cal State Fullerton. Like, what would it take to actually do this in a sustainable way here? And, um, and so that's the grant that a lot of now of our work is kind of powered through. So part of that was right away, I said, from the Mapping Arts Project through even understanding my work before that um, in Bridgeport, I said, you know, there's a huge potential for this work to not only reach uh, first-generation students um, here at Cal State Fullerton, but also, you know, communities um, that have been marginalized both, you know, within the, the, the larger kind of um, uh, scope of kind of city planning and development, but also within the fields of digital humanities. Digital humanities has not always been a welcoming space mm -hmm. to uh, people of color. And that's part of where this... Nor has public history. Oh, okay. There's a debate within public history for years, a lot of hand-wringing over, why is this such a white profession? Yeah. yeah we <laughs> <laughs> Museums and historic sites. And what can be done about that? And what can be... Exactly. And so those are the same questions that folks are asking in digital uh, humanities as well. And um, there's a famous article, I think it's Tara McPherson, Why are the digital humanities so white? And... But yet we're still, it, it came out a little while ago, but we're still asking that question. And, um, and so I think simply put, what this grant in, in, is invested in is it's saying, okay, look, we know the technology is not going anywhere. It's only changing and evolving and becoming much more immersive and experimental with kind of, you know, the metaverse and this idea that we're entering a new phase, actually, of our engagement where before we were kind of on the static web and then we were on kind of the, you know, um, where we started having sites that we could interact. Now we're in this immersive environment. So the technology is here. So why don't we train everyone to engage with it? And that's kind of the idea behind this grant. And um, otherwise, what we will see is we, we used to have conversations about the digital divide. And um, those conversations are kind of like really, I don't think they get the full complexities of, you know, because what we, what we know is that people are engaging with technology everywhere just in their own way. And what this 
opportunity gives us is a chance to say, to look also at the kinds of tools and technologies that people are using in their communities and to say, how can we mobilize and harness those to better tell your stories, to better get you involved in kind of these, these projects. And so a lot of our work with the Digital Ethnic Futures Consortium here is on building those opportunities and building them alongside and with communities, um, both here within um, Cal State Fullerton, but also within the larger um, um, Orange County region. Shirley, on a practical level, how does that work? Wow. As our outreach coordinator. Outreach <laughs> coordinator. Uh, well, um, you know, I'm just excited that it's just opening a door to for students of color. Uh, and I think that that's something that is so new and so um, revolutionized, revolutionized about this project, right? It's different that uh, is giving the opportunity uh, to many of us to engage with digital tools, something that we just didn't grow up learning around. You know, not many, many of us have, you know, laptops and this technology available to us. We don't know how to engage with it. And I just uh, l like the idea that uh, we are training uh, our own community to do this and to not be afraid, to be creative, to think of outside the box. And uh, there's so much work to do. And I think that we get that from the students that we talk to uh, about the, the project. They don't know what it is, but they're very curious about it, right? And they want to learn how, uh, how they can also engage with it. And that's, I feel like that's my role in trying to, f you know, um, get them on board and just um, in, in, in have that conversation that they can also do uh, digital, uh, digital work uh, with their fields, right? They don't need to be historians. You know, they can be in communications. They can be uh, students in, um, in, business. in business, yeah. in, you know, even in health, right? Yeah. There's so many ways that they can engage with digital tools and they can um, uh, enhance their work in their, in their own fields, right? Um, that's, that's something that we do. And also, uh, we engage with the community because there's also so much work uh, that the community is actually doing right now. And they also want a students to be involved in some of these projects. So our work is to work with students, with communities, and with some agencies outside the scope of the university just to, you know, how we can do this together. You know, how do we create and keep that conversation, you know, um, uh, here, right? Yeah, and I think a key part of that is um, something that we try and talk about um, in the, like, you know, for me, intro to digital history, like if we were going to say digital history 101, it has to start with that concept of collaboration. Because I, I would say I can teach you the tool, you can learn the technology, but if you don't understand collaboration, <laughs> it won't work. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't know of many successful projects that people do without collaborators. And so that's a big part of, of, of this work. And... Um, and so we have um, an interdisciplinary team. Um, so Shirley is our outreach coordinator. We have um, a research associate who's a recent history grad. 
who worked with us on another project last spring. Um, we have a humanities developer who understands, so they understand the questions that we ask and can help us kind of meet the tools that help us engage them so that we have sound kind of practice. Um, we also have a, um, we, we are looking to actually um, bring on a um, public humanities fellow. And for me, that's important because it gets at the idea that we are a community-engaged um, grant. Like we are, we are looking to come alongside communities and work with them, and and really see our work as as part of like public um, humanities of the public humanities field. Um, and so. So yeah, so it's an interdisciplinary environment, which I think should be reflective of, of, of the project teams that we develop. And we also, so everything from what Shirley said, you know, recruiting and training students across the university, but also really helping, I think, is important to help students who may not even see themselves as they, they may actually have really great technological skills, but they may not know how to interact with humanities data. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that's equally really, really important as it is as is training humanities students on the technology part. And so, you know, we have some initiatives in there for faculty to develop collaborative um, courses that um, could, you know, be taught in more than one discipline. Um, and could invest students in, you know, any aspect of digital ethnic studies. Um, that's that I, I would say that's another goal is to really see how this work can almost create more inroads and opportunities to get our students to be more interdisciplinary here. When you're done with the grant three years down the road uh, and you've got to write a report, <laughs> here's what we did, here's what we accomplished. Uh, what do you hope you'll be able to say? So I hope that we can point to um, a bevy of new course <laughs> proposals at varying stages of approval. <laughs> but That could take years yeah, by itself. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but new course ideas, ways that people revamp their curriculum to kind of centrally engage questions of technology with questions of, you know, um, black, Latinx, Indigenous, and Asian American lives. I think it would be great to um, see our partnerships, our community partnerships grow and flourish. Uh, we have, and I, when I say we, I mean Shirley and I, but, but you know, we've, we're kind of like really looking to develop uh, communities of practice, both on campus and off, and I think that uh, you know it would be great to see that these these relationships become they extend even beyond the scope of our grant project to where you know um, right now we just um, we're just working on a um, partnership with Libra Mobile, which is a um, uh, a bookstore and arts engagement um, initiative in Santa Ana that is heavily invested in bringing digital humanities to the communities um, that it works with. And, um, and I would love to see them, you know, integrated in many more initiatives throughout 
the campus. Uh, that would be, I think, a plus. Um, and then I think also just to have, I think, a, kind of going to your initial question, I think having a real opportunity to brand CSUF as a site in which people can do um, digital and public scholarship, I think is important. And I think it would be great to have that be something that comes out of um, this grant, but also is connected to all the other initiatives that are bringing those um, communities of practice together here. Well, before you have to report to the granting institution, we should get a report, an update from you on a regular basis to see how this is, is going. I'd like you to come back and we can talk about some specific things that are, that are in the works um, as a result of this, this grant and Shirley's outreach. <laughs> yes, and I think that uh, you can already say something that we, we, we put our um, efforts to it, that is the network uh, OC project that um, uh, a cohort of students worked on, right? It, it is the, um, the um, a prototype of three different maps, right? And I think, it, you know, everyone can go in into our network project on Instagram and they can, you know, f kind of learn a little bit about what we're doing and um, see the prototype there and, um, and join us in, in this journey. Yeah, absolutely. And also we um, hope to offer, we offered a summer, um, a week-long summer series on getting started in digital scholarship where we introduced a bunch of tools and equipment that we actually have on site and so that was fun and engaging and that was open to um, everyone, everyone, community, CSUF community, students. folks who were far away. I think we had even someone like from as far away as like who was on um, holiday in Peru <laughs> join <laughs> us. And so you don't even have to be physically here for some of these and, uh, opportunities, um, but those are there. But definitely we can leave um, a link to the network project, which is our recent mm -hmm project launch and which we kind of piloted what would it mean to actually work with a group of nine students and train them in uh, digital humanities, how did digital humanities work, and that project um, to do some creative data storytelling around Black-owned businesses in Orange County. And that actually stemmed from work that was done here at the Center for Oral and Public History um, first uh, with the... Um, uh, different shade, shade of different orange. Different shade of orange, yes. I want to thank you, Dr. Jamila and Shirley, for enlightening us. This was full of information, exciting projects going on, and I definitely want to have you back so we can check in and see how it's going and see what's what's happening with this, this large grant from the Mellon Foundation. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having thank you. us. Thank you. Hello, my name is Natalie Navarre-Garcia, and I'm the archivist for the Lawrence DeGraff Center for Oral and Public History. This part of Outspoken is called Out of the Archives. This section is where I highlight oral histories and other findings from our other projects. In this episode of Out of the Archives, we will be listening to excerpts from oral histories in our African American history collections. These interviews were used in the research for Networked OC, a digital public humanities project led by Dr. Jamila Moore-Pugh. 
that seeks to creatively document the past, present, and future of Black-owned businesses and community organizations in Orange County using interactive digital maps and data storytelling. Students enrolled in Dr. Moore Pugh's Introduction to African American Studies, History of Orange County, and Digital History Practicum courses spent the 2021-22 academic year conducting research and combining data from Coff's African American History Collections, along with the newly released census data and historic maps, to produce the first ever 3D reconstruction of Santa Ana's historic Little Texas neighborhood, which was a hub of black business and community building in Orange County in the 1950s. You can follow the project's progress on Instagram at Networked Project. The first interview clip is with Connie Jones, who was born in Santa Ana. She talks about her parents' move from Texas to the Little Texas area of Santa Ana, a neighborhood centered around North Bristol Street between 1st and 4th Streets, and named for the fact that many of its early residents had moved from Texas. Jones also describes the businesses they started when they first arrived in Orange County. To us, this was known as Little Texas. A lot of black families moved in this central part. Mm -hmm. uh, it was considered uh, Little Texas to them. Most people from Texas moved into the te Little Texas area. So there really wasn't a problem as far as them moving in yeah. because it was already a known area yeah. for black families yeah. coming, migrating here. Good, interesting. How did they consider themselves or how did you view, well, we're talking about them. Um, did they, were they poor or, or I um, mean, how did they view themselves? Do you know? I guess because they never went without anything to eat. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't consider themselves poor. Mm -hmm. uh, the term we use now would be low income. I know that they felt that they were low income, yeah. but they were uh, entrepreneurs in many ways. My mm -hmm. uncle started a um, cleaning business, Sears Janitorial, and because he cleaned, um, and did windows and things like that. And my grandmother and other family members cleaned the houses yeah. because that was a thing that my grandmother and my mother, when they did domestic work, they didn't do windows because that gave the opportunity for my uncle to make money. So uh -huh. they had the sense of being entrepreneurs yeah. when they came here. So they, they did that on the side as well as holding an eight to five job. The next clip is with Ernestine Ransom. Ransom's family moved to Orange County from Topeka, Kansas in 1937. After high school, Ransom moved to Los Angeles and married but soon returned to Santa Ana to be closer to her mother. Listen as she talks about her mother's role in the black community. Uh, practically mm -hmm. every black person that came, new person that came to town met my mother. She was called Mother Anderson, and she found them jet work as well as stayed at her place until they were able to find another place. Um, she lived, she had a, a place uh, on 4th Street in Santa Ana, and she I turned the garage into a housing, etc. And uh, when we got ready to move from her place, that's when we moved on 8th Street. But we did look at, uh, I wanted to look at other areas, but at that time we had a mindset of our place, and that's where we bought. Mm -hmm sort of sure. still in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I understand. Little by little at that time, you could see blacks moving further out, but not very far, 7th Street, 8th Street. Mm -hmm. uh, and almost always uh, west of, um, of uh, Bristol, right? That's right. 
Our last clip is from an interview with Reverend Dr. James Carrington. Reverend Carrington started the Friendship Baptist Church in Fullerton in 1964, commuting from L.A. for four years. Once they made the decision to move to Orange County, it took his family a year to get approval because of racial housing discrimination. Here, Carrington explains how he first became involved in civil rights issues like fair housing. What were your impressions of Orange County before you came here? Did you... Well, um, I didn't... All I knew um, on the surface... Um, a little bit that Orange County uh, was a, a very racist, and they had a reputation for that. And uh, I had never encountered it personally up until that time in Orange County. So what happened was uh, after getting here and everything, finding out how things really were. And um, but we worked through a lot of that, and uh, of course I met a number of people who were after, especially after Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, that we decided, okay, enough is enough, and we need to start making some changes uh, come about in the community. And I figured that I was knowing that my position as a pastor, and we were the only black church, predominantly black church, north of Santa Ana. And so all these various cities were out there, and, Blacks were being recruited from the South and from some of our, basically from some of our uh, colleges and universities. And so when these people would arrive, they were having a hard time finding a job, I mean, finding the housing. The company was going to get, giving them a job, but now finding the housing was a thing. So uh, we helped, uh, a number of us got together, and uh, whites and blacks got together, and we started doing some intervention work and trying to open up that area. And that's how the fair housing uh, came into action because some of us so-called liberal people, black and white, together, worked together to make that happen. And uh, then later on, we also helped establish the Human Relations Commission in Fullerton, which was the first one ever in Orange County. And that is still growing I hope you enjoyed these clips. All of these interviews were conducted by Bob Johnson, former head of the Fair Housing Council and scholar on Black history in Orange County. Johnson was the co-editor of A Different Shade of Orange, Voices of Orange County, California, Black Pioneers, a collection of oral history interviews from Coff's collections that focused on the experience of Black migration into Orange County. A Different Shade of Orange is available for purchase on our website, at coph.fullerton.edu. Thank you, Natalie. This has been Outspoken, the podcast of the DeGroff Center for Oral and Public History. I'm your host, Benjamin Cothra, for producer Carrie Markin. Until next time.